If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is a special hour, a special edition of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 30th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. And the reason why I say this is a special edition is that we had not actually scheduled to do a podcast this week since we did one last Sunday. We've kind of gone to about a bi-monthly basis, at least for now, although I don't even know if that's going to be able to sustain itself for, for all that much longer. But because of all the utter insanity that occurred with regard to the Brett Kavanaugh nomination this week, I felt like we just had to do a special edition of the World According to Zig podcast. We don't have an, an hour number two. I tried to get a guest. Um, Tom Mesro, Bill Cosby's attorney, uh, would have been great, and he, I thought, was going to do an interview. He said he would do it, but then his schedule didn't work out. I've also been trying to get Glenn Beck for quite a while because he has a new book out. He's agreed to do it, but we can't uh, figure out a time, actually, which is more difficult now because of the nature of how we do the podcast, but we're still hopeful to get Glenn back on before we uh, eventually end the podcast. Uh, uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. Go to have interesting mind he has yeah uh that, that would be an interesting interview should that actually occur especially since glenn's views on donald trump seem to have evolved uh recently but i do understand his book is very good so we're still hopeful to do that in the near future uh but we do have a second hour being posted since we don't have a guest this is kind of a long story. I'm not going to get all into it, but there is a second hour that is posted today that was briefly posted several months ago. And in a weird way, it's kind of apropos to the Kavanaugh case because it deals with the Penn State, Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno story. It's an hour that we did where right after the uh, quote Newsweek article that me and Ralph Cipriano had worked on for five months and then Newsweek bailed on one day before it was supposed to be published, which you can find at framingpaterno.com. When that came out, if you, remember, if you remember, I got bombarded by people who had information about what they perceived to be fraudulent, multi-million dollar Jerry Sandusky accusers. And this hour is just... It's mind-blowing on so many different levels, and I almost blew out my own mind because basically it deals with me dealing with these people 
who come forward with solid stories, say they want to tell it, schedule an interview, and then all of a sudden they disappear. So if you want to feel the frustration of my life, plus learn a little bit more about how insane that whole story really is and not the fairy tale that the media told you, make sure you check out the hour number two, which we've now posted this particular week. But this hour is going to be almost entirely on what happened this week with regard to the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, the special hearing that they held, the allegations against him, which are now not just by Christine Ford, but by two other women. Uh, I will, at the very end of this hour, I will probably talk a little bit about the fact that Tiger Woods won, as I said he would, during last uh, Sunday's podcast, and then completely crapped the bed during the Ryder Cup uh, this week, which ended today with the United States losing very badly. So I'll have a few words about that later in the hour, and and that actually provides me a disclaimer uh, for this hour. I'm not sure how this is going to go, mainly because I have been up since 2.30 this morning, it was not on purpose. I, I'm living on the West Coast. The Ryder Cup coverage started at 3 a.m. My subconscious must have gotten me up. I, I'm telling you, I had no plan to wake up because I had I, I was pretty certain the United States was going to get their butt kicked. But I woke up at 2.30, and I'm like, the Ryder Cup is on in a half hour. Do I go back to sleep? And then, of course, when I start getting to think about it, I can't get back to sleep. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to go watch this thing. And uh, anyway, I'll have some more thoughts on that later on. But I'm pretty exhausted. But I could probably do several hours on this whole fiasco, even as tired as I am. So let's go back in time. Last Sunday, seven short days ago, here was my perspective on the whole Kavanaugh deal. And that was that uh, there were some holes in Christine Ford's story. I uh, did an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus about whether or not her memory could have been influenced by other things, like, for instance, the therapy session in 2012, which was the first known record of her ever telling the story, or potentially was influenced by Mark Judge's two books that he wrote about this whole time period, 1997 and 2005. And that was my basic theory, that, that... it just didn't ring true. There were too many holes. There were things that she should know. My biggest question was, how did she get home? How did she get home? If there was one question that I could ask, it would be, how could she, or why, or how did she get home? Because she didn't say that. Now, didn't that didn't mean at that time that she didn't have that information. We didn't know because maybe she just left it out of her Washington Post version of her story and other elements of her story. My sense was last week, she doesn't know, because otherwise that would be part of the story. Uh, I wrote a column for Mediaite, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, our website, about the five questions that I, I would ask her that I did not anticipate would be asked. As it turns out, I was right that uh, three of the five would not be asked. However, one of them, how'd you get home, was asked, and... Surprise, surprise, she had no answer at all, which I find to be incredibly significant, and I'll explain why later. But just to revisit, so I was skeptical of her story, open to it. I've always been open, and people, you know, claim, oh, Ziegler, you've already made up your mind on this. You're invested in the Sandusky narrative. Bullshit. 
Bullshit. Just like this, and that, by the way, the Sineski narrative, if someone could ever prove that Jerry was guilty, I would be the happiest person on the freaking planet because it would get the monkey off my back. I would no longer have to worry about it, and I wouldn't you know, be, be bothered by the fact that an innocent man is going to die in prison. I'd be thrilled. Unfortunately, that's never going to happen because there's no way it's going to happen because I know he's innocent, despite what everybody else thinks they believe. The same thing with Kavanaugh. If someone could prove to me that Kavanaugh is a sex abuse uh, uh, perpetrator, I would be the first person as the father of two young daughters to throw him under the biggest bus I could possibly find. I would do it in a heartbeat. But I need some freaking evidence. And I need some freaking logic. However, while I was skeptical but open-minded about Ford's story, I also thought that her testimony was going to be a disaster for Kavanaugh because I know from my Sandusky experience and from the Al Franken experience that the rules are all screwed up now. It's basically impossible for an accuser to be discredited, especially in a high-stakes situation like this. Like, who would have possibly guessed whether or not the mainstream news media was going to find Christine Ford credible. Hmm, gee, that was a real mystery. A real mystery. It doesn't matter whether her story is credible. I mean, unless it's just beyond pathetic, which, of course, it's not going to be because she's an educated person who has gone through certain hoops to get here already. So it was obvious that this wasn't going to be a terrible performance by her, whether she, you know, and it's also pretty clear she believes that this happened, whether it did or it didn't. She passed some sort of lie detector test. We're not really sure what the nature of that lie detector test is. There's some questions about that have not really been answered. There's a lot of questions that have not been answered here. But I, it was clear, even without ever having seen her speak a word, that this was going to be a disaster because, of course, she's going to be believed. The Main Street, nobody in the Main Street news media, nobody is going to have the balls to say, you know, I didn't believe her. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they could they could be completely convinced her story's not credible. No one's going to say that because there's no risk reward in it for them. They'll get destroyed. I always refer to the mainstream news media as a pack. It's a club. You get outside uh, on an issue like this, you get outside of the herd, you're going to get run the fuck over. Trust me. I know. I have the skid marks on my back from getting run over, from getting outside the herd on that on the, this story, on Al Franken, on Donald Trump in general. Nobody's got more skid marks on their back than John Ziegler because I don't give a shit for better or for worse. But the reality is people in the mainstream news media do give a shit because they don't want to lose their cushy gig. As I always say, keep the gig is the most important thing you need to understand about what motivates these people. And the best way to lose a gig, the fastest way to lose a gig is to question a victim of sexual abuse. So you're never going to do that. It's never going to happen. So I knew this was a terrible idea. And I also was questioning last Sunday, where are the other accusers? Where are they? At that point, it had been about a week and a half since we had heard of this Ford allegation, first anonymously, and then she came out in the Washington Post. And so my thought was, shouldn't we have more accusers by now? By the way, regardless of whether or not they're real, because that's enough time for someone to get the idea, hey, 
I'm going to jump on this bandwagon. I, I This guy's in trouble. I can help. I'm a liberal. I'd like to see him go down. I, or or there's somebody in his past that can manipulate a story like I think the Ramirez story is. And sure enough, literally that night, last Sunday night, boom, the New Yorker comes out with a story from this, um, her name is Ramirez, this woman who uh, met Kavanaugh at Yale and has this story of there's a bunch of people, I'm paraphrasing, a bunch of people who are getting drunk they're goofing off. Apparently, somebody put a fake penis in her face uh, while she was blasted. And then she has no memory of the, or apparently no memory, at least one point had no memory of this happening, where, but apparently Brett Kavanaugh decides while at Yale that he's going to pull his pants down and stick his penis in the face of a woman. Right. He's worked his whole life to get to Yale. And he's going to do this. And oh, by the way, no one's going to report this to anybody. Nobody. Nobody's going to mention it because, you know, in 1982, nobody ever said anything about this kind of stuff. Seriously? Seriously. I, I love that we're trying to pretend that 1982 was like 1682. That's what we're trying to pretend. Like, like, no, like, like a man pulling down his pants and putting his penis in a woman's face at Yale University would not have caused a massive, massive controversy at the time and would have been adjudicated. So what's the basis of this? This, this New Yorker article. So when it comes out, I look at it and I go, oh, Ronan Farrow. Hmm. Okay, that's troubling because Pharaoh is, you know, he's considered to be uh, the media darling. Everything he says is true now because he brought down Harvey Weinstein. Now, I don't, I don't buy into that. You, you probably may remember last week I was talking about Bob Woodward. I don't buy into the Bob Woodward bullshit. You know, I think celebrity journalism is an oxymoron. I think as soon as you become a celebrity, you become a bad journalist because you start to believe your own bullshit. And because you start to, you know, buy into narratives that help your career, among other things. So I'm not somebody that evaluates a story that Ronan Farrow reports on and says, oh, it's Farrow. It's got to be true. By the way, his co-author on this is Jane Mayer. There's always a Ziegler connection. <laughs> no, I have not dated Jane Mayer. <laughs> no, no, but I have had a run-in with Jane Mayer in the past over the path to 9-11 movie. Jane Mayer was one of those who tried to take down my good friend Cyrus Narasta's path to 9-11 ABC miniseries back in uh, 2006. And so I'm inherently suspicious of Jane Mayer. So I'm reading this thing. And the more I'm reading, I'm literally thinking, is this an Onion parody of a story on sexual abuse? Because it is a complete joke. The Onion could not possibly have satirized bad journalism any more dramatically than what Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer did in that New Yorker piece. The, the highlight or low light, depending on your perspective, was when they used the following quote. Now, I really pick out of anything, but... There, this is one of like a dozen things, which I wrote a column about. You can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com. About a dozen things in this article that are just mind-blowingly bad journalism. But this is the worst. They actually used a quote from somebody. And the quote, this is a direct quote. 
I believe it could have happened. Now, I believe it could have happened about something that, ha- that allegedly occurred 35 years ago where the victim has no solid memory of it because she was drunk. Who the reporters actually state in the story, this is in the story, that six days before she tells the New Yorker a story, she told the New Yorker she has no memory of this. So 35 years later, she has no memory. Then 35 years and six days later, she's got, wah woo, wah, I remember this. It was Brett Kavanaugh who stuck his penis in my face. And what happens in the ensuing six days? Oh, she talks to her lawyer. That's what the article said. And who's her lawyer? A Democratic operative. Who would have thought? Eureka! It's amazing. Amazing how that worked. So so back to the, I believe it could have happened. Now, who said I believe it could have happened? Did Ramirez say I believe it could have happened? That would be troubling since she's the victim but at least you would know who it was and it would be someone we know was actually involved in something. We don't know what it was, but something. No, it was not Ramirez who said, according to the Ronan Farrow, Jane Mayer article, I believe it could have happened. No, no, we don't know who said this because that person is anonymous. Anonymous. An anonymous person is quoted in the New Yorker saying that this event 35 years ago, I believe it could have happened. And the only thing we know about the anonymous person is, according to Ronan Farrow, and maybe we should start calling him Ronan Sinatra because that's what Saturday Night Live referred to him as last night, Matt Damon. And I'm beginning to think he is Ronan Sinatra. I think he's Frank Sinatra's son. But regardless... According to Pharaoh and Mayor, <laughs> this person has not only no name, but no direct information of the event. I, I'm not making this up. This is not hyperbole. This is this is this is not cherry picking. This is this is the basis of this story. So I email Ronan Pharaoh. I actually have Ronan Pharaoh's actual real email. And I say, uh, uh, Ronan, uh, you jumped the shark on this one, babe. I didn't say babe, but, you know, maybe it's the Sinatra thing that's getting to me. So I I say, you you jumped the shark on this. And here's several problems with the story. uh, And I'm going to write about this for media. Can can I get a comment? I get no response. Then I think, oh, wait a minute. I remember I had that run in with Jane Mayer. I probably still have her email. So I try Jane Mayer's email. Bingo, she actually responds. Now, arrogantly and inaccurately and with a whole bunch of bullshit, but at least she responded. And you can see her response in the article that I wrote for, for Mediate um, about this. And, and what an absolute joke. In fact, it's, it's referred to as, I think the headline is, Ronan Farrow jumped the shark, but Brett Kavanaugh is chum. Because at that point, I realized, okay, we are now officially in Sandusky land where now we're going to get a whole bunch of new allegations, piggybacking on the first one. The first one's probably bullcrap, but it doesn't matter because now once we start to get multiples, everyone in the news media, and certainly every Democrat, is going to go, oh, each allegation strengthens the other. When in fact, it's the opposite. (laughs) It's the opposite. Whenever these things happen, you need to look at two things, all right? And this this is a 
hard and fast rule, and it's really important. Always look at the first allegation, because the first allegation has got to be rock solid when, when it comes out this way, all right? When, when it comes out, one, and then when there's a delay, and then, oh, look at this, and oh, look at this, oh, look at this. So look, th whenever that pattern occurs, you must micro-focus on the first allegation. The first allegation has got to be rock solid. Otherwise, the rest do not strengthen it. And then in the other direction, you got to look at what's the weakest of the allegations. <laughs> because because the it's really the weakest link argument. Because if there's a there if there is a, a allegation that's being taken seriously that is incredibly weak and an obvious lie, what does that tell you? Well, somebody is willing and capable of lying. And if somebody is willing and capable of lying, guess what? They all could be lying because they all got the same set of incentives and motivations. So sure enough, what happens after the Ronan Farrow article? Oh, we get the whopper, the big whopper. And who's got his fingerprints all over it? Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, who I have lost all respect for because of my experience in, in me and Paul Campos uh, mistaking what was really going on with the, the whole Shara Bouchard uh, and Elliot Brody scandal, which we thought Trump was involved with. I still think he might have been involved tangentially, but not, not directly. But it was Avenatti who bought into that first. And then he totally washed his hands of it and pretended he never said anything about it. And at that point, I realized, okay, this guy really is a scoundrel. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that he's a scoundrel. But, they, but I knew for sure at that point. I like to know for sure. He looked like one, smelled like one, but now I know for sure. Well, then he comes up with this allegation from Julie Swetnick. And he doesn't go to the media. No, 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 no. This, he goes the Leanne Tweeden route. The Leanne Tweeden route, and, and no one called Leanne Tweeden on this except for me. Leanne Tweeden, of course, was Al Franken's primary accuser. Leanne Tweeden, if you remember, and nobody in the media had any skepticism of this at all. She doesn't go to uh, 60 Minutes or Good Morning America or, you know, the New Yorker, Ronan Farrow. Somebody actually vet her story about Al Franken. No, what does she do? She posts it on the KABC website. Now, people bought, this is insane. I guess people don't understand what a joke KABC here is in Los Angeles, having competed against them for many years. I know personally, and they're a bigger joke now than even when I was competing against them at KFI. But the idea that their website, they don't even have a freaking news department, KABC. And she got called a journalist, a journalist, a journalist. No. Leanne Tweeden was not a journalist. Leanne Tweeden was a former nude model who was hanging on for dear life with a brand new gig at a crap radio station in Los Angeles and decided to get some publicity by putting this thing on their website completely unvetted. But the media pretended, oh, we got it. We have a news story here. No, it's not a news story. This is just her telling her story on her own damn website. Nobody has vetted this. Nobody. And if anyone had vetted it, you would have found out Leanne's story, Leanne Tweeden's story, makes less sense than Christine Ford's story. So, 
Avenatti doesn't go to the media. He just basically tweets out this complaint that uh, and this affidavit that this woman has signed to a story that uh, I really have to give Avenatti some credit for because you know a lesser lawyer might have kept in the affidavit the parts where Swetnick was talking about being abducted by aliens. Because that's really the level of this story. I, I, I have, I'm confident, and in the original story Swetnick gave Avenatti, that there was somewhere abduction by aliens. Because that is the level of insanity in this story. The, 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 this story uh, doesn't even pass the, the laugh test. But here's the basic story, and it's pretty intricate, but there's, here's the essence. That this woman, we now find out, by the way, she's at least three years older than Brett Kavanaugh. So as a college girl who doesn't live anywhere near where Brett Kavanaugh is, who doesn't go to college anywhere near where Brett Kavanaugh is, who has no social connections to Brett Kavanaugh's world because she went to a public school far away from Georgetown Prep. So she's three years older. She starts to go to these high school parties, these Georgetown prep parties, where she says on multiple occasions, girls were gang raped. What? What? And she herself was gang raped. And oh, by the way, at these parties, she remembers somehow the innocuous Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge they present at these gang rapes. They facilitated the gang rapes. Weirdly, they didn't participate in the gang rapes. Because I know, I know as a 17-year-old boy, 17, 18-year-old boy, that's what I'm hoping to do. I'm hoping to put my entire future on the line so somebody else can engage in a gang rape. That's, that's, that's fucking brilliant. All right, so this guy, so, so Brett Kavanaugh's whole life is about trying to get into an elite school. He's headed to Yale, and he's going to put it all on the fucking line so he, can, so he can help his buddies gang rape girls? What? Are you fucking serious? Can we, what? Can we, this is, this is just like Sandusky, though, because once everyone starts to believe the first, they'll believe anything. It doesn't matter it doesn't matter how insane it doesn't matter how in, inconsistent it doesn't matter how much evidence there is contradicting it it's it's got to be true because why would this woman make it up how was that was the reaction why who she's got a career she's got a security clearance she must be telling the truth well wait a minute hold on we don't know shit about her at this time we don't know anything we don't know the does she really have a security clearance? What's the nature of the security clearance? By the way, having a security clearance isn't that big a damn deal. Lots of people have security clearances. But we, we don't know the nature of her job. We found out some stuff since, by the way, that's awfully suspicious. Some lawsuits, some bad situations at work, uh, sexual harassment allegations on her part, people saying she's nuts That in the same lawsuit. I mean, so this is not a person with, like, tremendous credibility, but everyone presumes, oh, Avenatti's vouching for her, and she's, you know, her picture looks cute, so she must be telling the truth. Well, it doesn't matter if what you're saying is insane, because this is insane. This is insane on its face, it, at every level, okay? And I know this because I basically live Brett Kavanaugh's life. 
All right. At the very same time period, I was going to an all boys prep school outside of big city in the Northeast. He went outside of DC. I went outside of Philadelphia. I went to Georgetown University right after he went to Georgetown Prep. I know this culture. I know this time period. There were no fucking gang rapes at Catholic school parties. Okay? There was none. Never. And I went to a lot of parties. I wasn't one of the cool people, but the cool people let me to their parties. Okay? I. This is insane. It's insane on its face. It's absurd. Do we forget that Billy Joel did a song in 1977 called Only the Good Die Young? Only the Good Die Young is about how Catholic girls wait far too long, okay, to have sex. Catholic girls in the early 80s are not having gangbangs. They're also not having threesomes like this goddamn devil's triangle bullshit. This is, this is absurd. It is absurd on its face. And there's no evidence for it. If this ever happened, and I always go back to this, okay? If this ever actually happened, there would be dozens and dozens of people coming out of the woodwork going, oh my God, thank God, finally someone broke the lid off of the Georgetown prep gang rape cover-up. What the fuck? And, And this is being taken seriously. This is being taken very seriously by by news media outlets, by Democrats. Senator Richard Blumenthal, I've actually lost, not all confidence, a lot of confidence in the in the Trump-Russia investigation because Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from, I guess, Connecticut, who, who has been, I thought, pretty credible on Russia, has bought totally into this gang rape bullshit story. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. If he's bought into gang rapes at Georgetown Prep involving Brett Kavanaugh, then the idea that he's bought into Russian collusion in the Trump campaign all of a sudden becomes meaningless. Because <laughs> if you're buying that bullshit, then if you're that easily fooled, you can easily be even more easily fooled on the Trump-Russia thing. But that's another story mostly for another day. But th- so this story to me iced it. I'm like, okay, if 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 we're into the realm of alien abduction already, and Avenatti doesn't want to be <clears throat> have his story vetted in any way, not that it would get even difficult. See, that's that's the part of this you really need to understand. Avenatti's no dummy. He he knows he knows the media wants this story to be true, and even he's afraid of giving it to the media <laughs> because somebody might go. Really? 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 And isn't it interesting, by the way, and I I still haven't fully figured out what this means, but isn't it interesting that in none of these stories, none of the three, does Brett Kavanaugh actually engage in anything close to a sex act? Why is that? Now, some people go, oh, John, you can't say that. Oh, he tried to have sex with Christine. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on a second. According to her... Yes, it was an assault, horrible, disqualifying, horrendous if true. He's lying about it. All that, given. But there's not even any nudity in the story, right? Even in the Ramirez story, there's not actual sexual contact. And and in the Swetnick story, he's setting up gang rapes by, by spiking the punch. By the way, how do you spike the punch so that only the girls get uh, the, the spiked punch? How does that work? 
but he's that's what she's and how the hell is she remembering any of this and why hasn't she told anybody about this for 35 years but so all of it makes no damn sense none but again why is Kavanaugh not actually get anything out of this sexually since he's clearly a sex crazed Catholic kid that makes no damn sense all right so so then in the midst of this we have this hearing and I knew this hearing was going to be a bad idea I had no idea how bad an idea it was going to really be Charles Grassley the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee the uh, Republican from Iowa needs to be put out to pasture the guy is too damn old. He has no idea what he's doing. He has no idea the realities of modern life, especially in the Me Too environment. And they got this brilliant idea. I, I would love to have been in the meeting when Grassley says, okay, guys, he gets the Republicans together, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, <laughs> Orrin Hatch, uh, Senator Kennedy. I, I, I got a plan. Here's the plan, guys. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a female prosecutor over which we have no control. She's going to come in and she's going to ask for the questions for us so that we mean, nasty, white male conservative Republicans don't have to be on camera questioning a sex abuse victim. Oh, I like it. Good job. Uh, Great idea. Yeah. And here's what we're going to do. So we're going to limit her to five minutes, tight, tight leash, five minutes so that she can maybe get one and a half questions in, maybe two if we're lucky, and then we're going to stop. And at that point, we're going to go to the Democrats, and we're going to allow the Democrats to tell everyone on national television in front of a huge audience how incredibly wonderful it is that Ford has come forward, how believable she is, and prop up her story in any way needed should the prosecutor poke any holes into it. Sound like a good idea, guys? Oh, yeah. Awesome. And, here, and here's what we're also going to do. This, this part's really great, guys. So when Kavanaugh finally gets to tell his story, we're going to keep the female prosecutor so that Kavanaugh can be blasted from both sides. How about that, guys? Good idea? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Who the hell thought that was a good idea? How did Lindsey Graham ever go, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to work? I mean, it was obvious within 15 seconds that this was a disaster. And sure enough, it was because the prosecutor, Mitchell, I mean, she seemed earnest enough, but you, she was treating Ford with unbelievably kid gloves and you can't get anything done in a story like this in five minutes. And then you got to wait to have the Democrats clean up whatever just happened or to change the subject. You, you can't go anywhere. It's, it's an absurd process. And as I mentioned, Mitchell only got to two of the questions that I had proposed in my Mediate column. One of them was, how did you find, how did you latch on to 1982 as your date, as your year, not your date, your year. As you know, I'm really big into to times and places. This one doesn't have any time or place. But the 82 year, even when, though she did ask the question, how did you latch on to 1982? She didn't ask it properly and she didn't follow up because here's why 1982 is important. According to the therapist notes, the only record we have of her ever telling this story, she says she's in her late teens when this happens. She's not in her. So what changed? What changed? 
That's a critical question. Now, I think that's where she was going, but probably because of the five-minute time limit, she couldn't get there. And that's a critical question because we don't have any evidence that she's referencing Brett Kavanaugh in 2012 when she does that therapy. Now, she may claim that that's the case, but there's no evidence of it. So why are you saying late teens, according to the therapist, in 2012, and then all of a sudden you're 15 when this happens? Is it possibly because Brett Kavanaugh is two years older than you? And if you really are in your late teens, Brett Kavanaugh's no longer in high school? And that's a big problem for your story? Because now he's off to Yale, it's not the same group of friends, all this changes? Is that not possible, Ms. Ford? No one asked that. And the biggest question is, how'd you get home? Now, thankfully, Mitchell did ask this. And not to no surprise at all, since this is the one I was waiting for, Ford had no idea. She had no idea. And, and Mitchell, to her credit, she had the map out showing, look, you're six to eight miles away, your house is, from where you say this occurred. You're 15. You can't drive. This is a traumatic experience. This has got to be a hellish, these are my words, this has got to be a hellish experience that anybody would remember after escaping this preppy den of death. You, you somehow get home six to eight miles away. By the way, this is not as the crow flies six to eight miles either. She, you can't get, there's no way. She couldn't have walked the six to, straight eight, six to eight straight miles in that part of suburban D.C. Impossible. There's highways all over the place. So I don't know what it would have been to walk or to ride your bike or whatever. So this, this would have been incredibly memorable. Instead, zero, not, not even a theory. Now, why is that important? People have misinterpreted me on Twitter all damn week long uh, about what I mean by this. I am not saying, because the response usually is, but John, if she's lying, wouldn't she have come up with a lie for that part of the story? No, I'm not saying she's knowingly lying. I don't think she is. It's possible, but it, there's some things in her story that make that really difficult, really difficult, that for her to be completely making this out of thin air, knowingly. But... But what's not difficult to understand is that the reason why she has no memory of that part of the story, which is a critical part that you would think anyone would remember, is that this was like a nightmare where she wakes up once she gets out of the house. Imagine if it was a nightmare. I'm not saying it was is literally a nightmare, but let's pretend it was a nightmare, right? Let's pretend she had a nightmare where this happened one time. You would have no idea where exactly it happened, but you might remember the, the intricacies of the house, but you wouldn't know where it happened because that's not part of a nightmare. There's no address in your nightmares. You know what else is not part of your nightmares? How you got home once it's over with. So that's why it's important that she doesn't know this because it's perfectly consistent with a created memory. How that memory was created, I don't know. I'm open to possibilities. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus and I talked about some possibilities. You can find that at freespeechbroadcasting.com and last week's hour number two. It's possible that it was Mark Judge's books in 1997 and 2005. 
which triggered this. It's possible that it was therapy in 2012. Interestingly, in 2012, when she's doing her couples therapy, Brett Kavanaugh is in the news because we're having an election. Jeffrey Tubin actually does essentially a hit piece on Brett Kavanaugh showing the kind of justice that might get put on the Supreme Court if Barack Obama loses. Now, I have no way of knowing, is it, did she read that? Could she have read it with well, the timing of it? I'm just saying it's not implausible that Brett Kavanaugh comes into her consciousness, especially when there's a, a character in Mark Judge's book named Bart O'Kavanaugh. This is not a stretch, folks. So the created memory theory, to me, is very much alive. And frankly, when I was watching her testimony, I'm like, holy shit, this feels more like a created memory than I even thought of. Why? Because she was using psychobabble constantly. Now, people are saying, well, but John, she's in this industry. She's a, I don't know what her technical term is, but she's she's very well-versed in the whole realm of memory. She was using all sorts of key buzzwords with how memory works. And I'm like, okay, but that doesn't make her immune from this happening to her. In fact, it might even have facilitated it depending on the nature of the therapy. And where are the therapy notes? Why can't we see the therapy notes? Where are they? If the therapy notes are your corroboration, then we should be able to see the therapy notes, just like we should have all the information on the lie detector test, but we don't. And while I'm at it, why does she have two lawyers sitting there with her? Could someone explain that to me? Why does she need any lawyers there? She's there to tell, she's not, this is not a trial. She's not in any legal jeopardy, unless somehow she's lying. She's in, she, there, there's no, no reason for her to, her to have a lawyer there. Yet, yet she's got two. That didn't make any sense to me. Also, by the way, her memory of recent events is terrible. She had no idea if or when she had given the therapy notes or some of them to the Washington Post. She had no idea. She had no idea that the lie detector test she took was on the same day as her grandmother's funeral. Now, how do you, how do you, now this is a woman whose memory from 36 years ago we're supposed to torpedo a man's life over? I, I am very, look, I, I'm open on people having bad memories, but if they don't have good memory, then why are we taking this so seriously? There could be other explanations for this memory. So anyway, to the surprise of absolutely no one, despite these problems with Ford's story, and frankly, and you're not allowed, you're really not allowed to say this, but I've had a lot of people say this to me on Twitter and in person. There seemed like there was something off about her. She really wasn't that impressive. She frankly wasn't as impressive as a, from a professional standpoint as I kind of expected her to be. She kind of seemed a little ditzy. And that doesn't mean she's not telling the truth. And of course, everyone will always say, well, it's because of the trauma she experienced. This was 36 years ago. This is, this is the, because of the trauma she experienced? And the fact that she seems to be exaggerating that trauma, saying she can't fly, and yet she's flying to Maryland for lie detector tests and flying back. And I have to say, in all seriousness, the number one thing her testimony revealed to me, other than the fact that she has no idea how she got home, 
was that she was not told by her lawyers that she could have testified in private in California. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you this was a political hit job. Doesn't mean she's lying or thinks she's lying. It means she was being used. That's what that means. Because there's no other explanation. If she really has this horrible fear fear of flying, and Republicans say, okay, fine, we'll come to you, and we'll do this in private and protect your, your anonymity, or at least partially your anonymity, and she says under oath that she has no idea that was offered, that's because that offer was prevented from getting to her. And it's because it was done for political reasons. And there's other indications that that's what happened here too. But surprise, surprise, everyone thought, oh my God, she's so credible. Kavanaugh is done, it's over. And politically, I, that was not a surprise to me. I, I thought Kavanaugh was gonna be in very, very big trouble if, if Ford uh, testified, and he might even be toast. And it didn't surprise me that everyone believed him. And, um, and of course, no one, no one wants to even question any of this. I even have, it really bugs me how often this occurs in my life. Because I, I don't have very many friends, but the friends that I do have, I, I used to think they were really strong bonds. And what I've learned is <clears throat> people get so invested in news stories that it doesn't matter your history with them. They'll throw you under the bus in a heartbeat if it, it is required for them to remain invested in a reality they want to believe in. And that happened to me over, during Ford's testimony. I, I had tweeted about the fact that she was using the term PTSD. As soon as she starts using the term PTSD, I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. It's Sandusky all over again because that's what all these guys got diagnosed with, including my fake accuser who didn't have PTSD because he wasn't abused. All of them, the therapist problems with their memories or not mem- remembering stuff or not telling stuff at the time, it's all PTSD. And I referenced that I am very skeptical of therapists telling somebody they have PTSD in a story this old. And my, what I thought was my really good friend, Kim Goldman, the sister of Ron Goldman, who was murdered by OJ Simpson, who I used to date pretty seriously, who I have known for many years, I, I have uh, been in foxholes with, have fought for very, in a very uh, arduous fashion. We were very close. Uh, she was at my wedding. Tried to teach her young boy to swim and play golf when we were dating. I mean, so we, we had a really good relationship. And she tweets at me that I am totally wrong. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no experience in this realm. And I'm like, what? Kim, you have no idea, no idea my experience on this. And so I, I text her. I go, Kim, would you at least give me some benefit of the doubt here that maybe, just maybe, after spending six years on this story, that I have some experience that you might not be privy to that might be relevant to this. And she gives me this business about how I'm not showing compassion for a sex abuse victim. And I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. All the compassion I have shown you and your family over the last however many years has been since we met, which was about uh, 12 years ago through thick and thin, when nobody else was there fighting for you, putting my own butt on the line, not to mention my experience with your own son, I don't have compassion. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person who lacks compassion because I dare to question when somebody is telling a 36-year-old story intended to destroy a man's life and change the Supreme Court. 
I lack compassion. The rest of that text session did not go well. So then the next day after Ford's testimony, my wife is coming home from the gym and she sees about 20 women. I won't tell you how she described the women because that would be deemed politically incorrect. But my wife sees about 20 women just outside of her gym on a corner near where we live. And they are protesting Kavanaugh and they are chanting, we believe Christine, we believe Christine, we believe Christine. So my wife calls me and she says, you should go over and interview him. I'm like, okay, sure. I got nothing better to do. That sounds like fun. Sounds like a Ziggler thing to do. And so I, I get my iPhone and I start to drive over and she calls me immediately. She says, wait a minute, hold on. I want to make something very clear. You're not allowed to get arrested here, which is always a good, a good clarification to make whenever I get involved in one of these situations. So basically she takes at least one of my testicles and puts it in the trash can. And so I, I have to be on my best behavior because I'm not allowed to get uh, arrested or even detained probably because there's an important distinction there that I've learned in my career. But that's another story for another day. So I go up to these uh, 20 women and I ask, can I talk to somebody about why you believe Christine? And uh, hilarity ensues as I play devil's advocate with them. So we're here with about 15 anti-Kavanaugh, pro-Ford protesters, and nobody nobody wants to talk about why they believe Christine Ford's story. Is that accurate? Well, I'll tell you this, because what motive does she have? She has no motive other than to stand up for what's right and for a process that's fair or for justice that's given to all. So you believe her, but why don't you believe him? I said I believe her. Okay, but, and but why I believe, don't you believe him? Because the process has been been corrupted and there hasn't been an investigation, a thorough investigation like all the other candidates and we're that. asking for a five day delay to do a thorough investigation of those people who said that they have knowledge that there who, was an issue. Who, wait a minute, who said that they had knowledge there was an issue? Well, you know, you watch it, you know who Nobody they are. Nobody said that they had knowledge there was an issue. They have knowledge, they say that they weren't, they, they didn't have knowledge of that particular case, but they have knowledge of him and his behavior okay, and but, other but, parts but of you, his academic career. But wait a minute, that's a totally different issue. You're, oh, no, you're, it you're, no, how it does that relate to whether or not you believe Christine Ford was assaulted because, 36 years Because ago? Christine has no motive other than to tell the Did truth. Did you ever hear of her before uh, this week? She has no motive. Did other you ever than hear of her before this week? I don't have to hear no, of no, no. her. So, I believe so, her. So today she's famous. Last two weeks ago she was unknown. Is that accurate? She's what does that? What is this? Just so people don't like fame. This woman. People don't like fame. This woman. Oh, you so think, you're saying oh, you're, no, no, you're no. saying that there was no oh, motive? No. Okay, so, so I'm gonna tell you something. As a woman, why would I step forward and put myself under that a, a horrible? incident that she has you have to ask her that doesn't make what? it true well, you, you said there's no motive there's plenty of motives no, she happens to be a liberal she wants kavanaugh's confirmation to be torpedoed that that's a motivation how is that not a motivation how is that not a motivation to go before what she why not maybe not for you but maybe for her but why don't you believe him why don't you believe him i'm not saying i don't believe him what i'm saying is that Evidence Wait a minute, if you believe her, then he has to be lying. Oh no, you're making that conclusion. Not oh, wait a minute. Me. Only you one person could be telling together. the truth. Oh, no, that's he's not fair. He's already a You know, okay, if if he is telling the truth, then he should be open to five more days 
He said he would do whatever it took. Oh, that's garbage. He said that. He said that to the committee. By the way, are you guys aware that they have delayed the vote? for Yes. He hid behind. He hid behind the committee. Okay. And that's but I, I, I'm just confused as to why you guys are so sure she's telling the truth. I mean, she's, she, this happened 36 this years woman ago. Has what, what were you doing in the summer of 1982? I'm not, I'm not being no, no, Do you remember the, the summer of 1982? If you were assaulted, you will remember that happened. Really? Okay. Yes. And so let me ask you this. I agree that you would remember that. I think you would remember a lot. And if you were 15 years old, you would not know what to do. You would right. not dare to tell your parents. Right. You would not dare right. to tell your I agree with them. So let me ask you something. How come she doesn't remember how she got home? Because that's part of what happened. Oh, she only doesn't remember how she got home. And eight, eight miles, eight miles, she has no idea how she got home as a 15-year-old. Oh, really? but she remembers everything else. No, you're not giving any answer. We don't have to answer to you. We answer to our God and so you, our experience. So you just want to believe something with no evidence. Oh, that's garbage. Go away. Investigation with no evidence. <laughs> That's right. There's no evidence. Thank you, ladies. Appreciate it. So that went well. Uh, it went about exactly as I would have expected. To be clear, I was indeed playing devil's advocate, especially with regard to motivation. I don't know what her motivation is. Again, I, I am wedded to the, although not married to, the false memory theory, in which case she's not making this up for any particular purpose, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have a motivation. And, and this, this part of the whole sex abuse issue where the rules have changed so dramatically and the pendulum has swung so far in favor of the accusers that any action is now rationalized and there's nothing an accuser, a, a accuser can do to discredit their own story. But th we cannot miss the fact that she does have motivations and yes there's fame yes there's a liberal torpedoing a supreme court nomination there's also money i, I mean she's got you fund me accounts that are huge at this point she's probably going to get a book deal out of this her career is set in liberal academia forever again she may not have thought about any of this but the idea that there's no reason for her to do this is is absurd it's not true. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's not, but you're not even allowed to say it because then you're politically incorrect, which is how the rules have changed. The rules have changed basically through fear, through fascism, through intimidation. And I'm like about the last guy on the planet that's still not intimidated because I'm already dead. My whole career is over largely because of this issue. So I don't give a shit, but at least that frees me up to tell the truth. We're living in a bizarro world. So in the rational world, her story didn't come close to meeting the threshold for what people want this story to do. There is nowhere near, even if it happened, which I'm still a little bit open to. Even if it happened, there's not nearly enough evidence to meet the threshold of torpedoing a Supreme Court nomination. There just isn't, which is probably why, by the way, there were new allegations because people were starting to realize we need the cavalry to come in because this story ain't going to cut it. 
And so the cavalry came in in the form of Ronan Farrow and Michael Avenatti. And there was, by the way, another even more ridiculous allegation that NBC reported that was such a joke, it made the Swetnick story seem credible. Even Megyn Kelly, an NBC employee, tweeted out how ridiculous that story was. So that one apparently has been killed. But who knows, there'll probably be more by the end of this week. So Kavanaugh gets up there, and I, you know, I, I will acknowledge my biases. And I have a lot of bias in this one. One, because obviously uh, I like Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court pick. At least I did before <laughs> he became <laughs> exceedingly partisan and, a, and, and have some issues with temperament, which I'll get to momentarily. But from a judicial philosophy standpoint, other than executive power, which makes me a little nervous, I, you know, I want him on the Supreme Court. I want somebody on, you know, to replace Kennedy who's a conservative. That's number one. Number two, this story feels an awful lot like Sandusky, so I'm fully aware, and it's there's I could spend an hour talking about the parallels between this and Sandusky. Uh, a lot of people are actually starting to get it, uh, you know, privately saying, "Oh man, if this could happen to Kavanaugh, why couldn't it happen to Sandusky?" Well, because it did. It's the exact same damn story. So I'll admit that that gives me a bias. I have a bias because I lived a, a an experience. In my life, very similar to Brett Kavanaugh. He was a hell of a lot better student than, than I was, but very similar experience. So I, I feel, you know, at least some semblance of a kinship there. I also, to a smaller degree, know exactly, probably better than 99.99% of people do, I understand exactly what he was going through when he started his testimony. Because this reminded me in extreme ways of my deposition, my my um, my trial in Louisville, where I was uh, accused of defamation by a former girlfriend by the name of Darcy Devita, because I remember going through the hell of having my name drugged through the mud for two or three days of bullshit media coverage where this became like the mini O.J. Simpson trial of Louisville, Kentucky. I had been fired in Louisville, rehired by the same company in Los Angeles. I came back to Louisville a year later for this bogus trial. Total bullcrap on every possible level. And I was living in la-la land, the stories that were being told in and out of court, in the media, just absurdity. And I couldn't stand it. I was boiling. In fact, had the plaintiffs not made me the first witness on the third day, I think it was the third day of the trial, I probably would have exploded and not made it through. They made a huge mistake by even me calling, calling me as a witness fairly early on in the trial because I wouldn't have made it. I would not have made it. In fact, at one point, one of the biggest news stories of that week was the camera catching me turning around to my good friend, Jemmer, who's now the congressman for Louisville and has been ever since, and saying, mouthing the words, this is ridiculous. And so when I got up on the stand and I'm, I'm like, thank God they're finally going to let me talk. And her attorney, her, his first question, this guy's an absolute dick. And his first question is, Mr. Ziegler, did you turn to, the, to uh, Mr. Yarmouth in this courtroom yesterday or the day before? And, and then he misquotes what I said. I, and I said, no, it didn't happen. And so he's confused. Like, am I denying the whole thing? I said, no, I didn't say that. So what did you say? And I said, I said, this is ridiculous. And then he asks me, well, this, this court proceeding is ridiculous. And I went into full Brett Kavanaugh mode. I went into an 11 
right off the top. And I blasted him. I blasted the judge. I blasted the whole process. I blasted the media. I, it was, I, it, it, I'm sure my lawyers were like, oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. What just happened here? <laughs> and... I don't know if this is why we won, but we ended up winning unanimously against all odds. Our jury consultant said we had no shot. But it, it showed me, by the way, that there's some value in fighting back instead of curling into the fetal position in these situations. Because when you're wrongly accused, you got to act like it. Especially in this kind of situation. This man's life is being destroyed. His family's going through hell. He's going to lose his Supreme Court dream. Of course you're going to be pissed off. Now, there is a line. <laughs> There's a fine line. I was perfectly fine with his state, his opening statement. His statement, I thought, was damn near perfect in the combination of emotion and facts. I thought it was great. I did not think his Q&A was nearly as good. Uh, I thought he caused himself some problems. I thought the... <laughs> The obsession with talking about how much you like beer was really stupid, uh, given where he had to know where they were going to go. I, I thought he became too openly partisan uh, and did raise some issues of temperament. I even wrote a column about this. My column of that day's events is by far the most nuanced and fair of any that I saw. You can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Because, and I ended basically saying, he's innocent. I'm sure he's innocent, especially based upon the preponderance of the evidence that currently exists, but he may have disqualified himself in proving it because based upon what the Supreme Court has always been, he's too partisan and too emotional. Now, granted, it's incredibly unfair to make that assessment when he's literally being tortured. It's because no prior Supreme Court nominee has been waterboarded on national television, and then we got to see their reaction. My guess is all eight of the people that are currently on the court probably would have reacted just as badly. So I'm mindful of that. I'm, I'm, I, rem, I, I, I keep that in mind, and I've not come, not that my conclusion makes a damn bit of difference, but I don't know for sure how I would vote on the Kavanaugh nomination now. I'm also aware of the fact that the Supreme Court of 20 years ago is not the same Supreme Court that is today. It is a partisan, unfortunately, it is a partisan organization now. That's what it is. And so maybe that's just the real world. Maybe that's just the world in which we now live. And so to punish Kavanaugh would be too much of a bad precedent because that, and that might be the, the, the thing that would keep me on team Kavanaugh is that getting rid of him now would set the worst precedent in the history of precedents because now this would happen again to anybody else in the future, not to mention you'd be destroying a man who's likely innocent forever. And it's interesting to me that he said, and I think this, you could argue that this goes to his psychology regarding why he was at an 11. I think you could make an argument that he had already accepted that his nomination was dead when he went in there. And the reason I say that is he at different points in his testimony says, I don't think I can even teach anymore because of these allegations. Then he says, I don't think I can even coach girls basketball. Now, I totally got this because this is where I'm living in a much smaller way, Kavanaugh's life. 
I can't teach anymore. I can't coach anymore. I've coached numerous varsity sports. But because of the Sandusky thing, I don't even try. Because I know it's, it's you're going to get blackballed. There's no way. There's no way to get hired. It's just not worth the risk and reward. Oh, this guy, you would Google him, and he's a Sandusky supporter. I mean, that's that, i got to live the rest of my life that way. And it's going to be worse because it's going to be every time, you know, a, a friend of one of my daughters suddenly ghosts her, it's going to be because of me, whether it is or it isn't. That's the hell of my life because I'll get blamed, at least by my wife, because, oh, well, maybe her, her parents Googled you. So that's the world that Kavanaugh's living in. But for him to admit that, think about that. You're admitting you're not allowed to coach girls basketball, but you still might be on the U.S. Supreme Court? That, to me, felt like a guy who knew he was a dead man walking. And then he saved himself. Why? And this is the great irony of this whole situation, especially for an anti-Trumper like me. He saved himself for one reason and one reason only. He had a one-person jury named Donald J. Trump. Correct. And he knocked it out of the fucking park for Donald J. Trump. Correct. Because Trump loves a fighter. Trump is more than willing to believe someone is falsely accused of, of a sexual offense. He loves a partisan. And frankly, Kavanaugh, and this is the dangerous part, Kavanaugh is way, way, way more obligated to Trump now than he was when Trump picked him. Trump has literally given him a chance to save his life and reputation. So now he's beholden to Trump in a very dangerous way, and he literally despises Democrats now. Whether he did before all this, we don't know. But he clearly does now, and not without good reason. So this whole situation is completely fucked up. By the way, speaking of Trump, you know, you probably heard or maybe saw Matt Damon played Brett Kavanaugh on Saturday Night Live last night. It was totally unfair, very predictable. I knew exactly where the, what was going to happen. I could have written the damn thing myself. Um, very unfair, but also funny. I mean, there were some definitely some funny moments, and getting Matt Damon to play Brett Kavanaugh is going to get a lot of eyeballs, both live and, you know, as the video goes viral. In the past, I had a sketch on Saturday Night Live, the season premiere, big audience, I'm sure, with someone on such thin ice as Brett Kavanaugh would have ended the nomination, especially after what happened with Jeff Flake deciding to extend everything for a week for this bogus FBI investigation. So, which I'll get to momentarily. But because of Trump, I actually think that the Saturday Night Live sketch isn't going to hurt Kavanaugh at all, and it might even help him. Think about this. Think about this. If you're Trump, because you know Trump watched it, if you're Trump, how are they portraying Kavanaugh? They're portraying him, first of all, by Matt Damon, a massive, cool celebrity. That's a plus. Number two, they're portraying him as strong, like too strong, like so strong he's scary strong. Boy, that's going to turn Trump off. They're gonna, they portray him as a potential sex abuser. Well, Trump doesn't give a shit about that. They portray him as kind of a cool guy. 
He's the partier. Trump's not going to have a problem with that. They also portray him as an asshole. Well, as a professional asshole, Trump's going to be like, shit, this is why I nominated the guy. He's me. So there, there is nothing in that that is going to offend Donald Trump at all. And this is where I am in such a bizarre situation because I'm as adamantly anti-Trump as anybody on the planet. But I got to tell you, Trump is the only president the only president in my lifetime, probably ever, where Brett Kavanaugh would still have a prayer of being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Because every other president would have tucked and run. Every other one would have bailed on his ass long before this and allowed a good man to be completely railroaded. And, and I'm as open-minded and objective and honest as they come. That goes a long way with me. Now, we're not done yet. This thing isn't over. He's not confirmed yet, and I think there's going to be at least two or three more chapters before this thing is over. But right now, I am amazed at how well Trump is handling this. It's almost like Trump with Supreme Court nominees, like everything, almost everything else, he's deplorable. He's terrible. He's, he's the worst president by far. And yet, when it comes to Supreme Court nominees, it's like this magic thing happens where he's all of a sudden tremendous. He's like this, the worst spouse ever that for some reason on Christmas and birthday and anniversary is awesome. On, on the big holidays, he's awesome. Every other day of the year, he sucks. But for some reason on this issue, it's not because it's philosophical. He doesn't give a shit about it. He does not care about the Supreme Court from a philosophical standpoint. He only cares about the Supreme Court probably if, on if they happen to rule on whether he can pardon himself or something regarding the, the, the Russian investment thing. And I have not you know, discarded that. It's troubling. But there's no good outcome here. I guess I'm looking for the least bad outcome. And to me, having him torpedoed without evidence would be much more of a travesty than any other scenario, especially since I don't think they could get him replaced. That's the other thing. And, and, and as far as my theory all along, let me be clear about what I've said about voting in November. I have always said, I want the Democrats to take the House. I think it is more important than ever that the Republicans hold the Senate. After watching what the Democrats have done in this fiasco, the Democrats cannot be allowed to take the Senate. So, I mean, so I want the Democrats to win the House for oversight and potential impeachment if it's necessary. But I do not want Democrats taking the, the, the Senate. Because if Democrats take the Senate, first of all, if, if, if Kavanaugh doesn't get through, then we're totally screwed. And even if Kavanaugh does get through, what happens if Clarence Thomas suddenly dies? We're totally toast. We're toast. So the Republicans have got to somehow hold on to the Senate. Now, as far as what Jeff Flake did, this was uh, absurd. Um, it's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, now, in concept, it was okay. In concept, the idea of a very short investigation with limited witnesses, very specific witnesses, I would be okay with. If, if by magic, I, they said, okay, we're going to talk to Mark Judge, maybe Leland Kaiser, uh, the female who says this never happened, who's a friend of, of Ford's, and I'd like to talk to Eric Barrett. I think it's Eric. Chris, is it Chris Barrett? Chris Barrett, I think is his name. Chris Barrett, who was actually Ford's boyfriend. And also the guy who Ed Whalen got torched for targeting and for fingering as the potential real culprit here. 
he may have been closer than anyone realized uh, based upon what Ford said. Um, but I would have, you know, if that's all that was going to happen, I'd be okay with it. This thing is fraught with danger because Flake is so naive. He thinks, one, that it's going to please Democrats. It's not going to please Democrats, number one. Number two, there is enormous potential for red herrings. We, this is not happening in a vacuum. Flake is pretending this is happening in a vacuum. This is a massive news story. Everybody tangentially related to the story now has a massive incentive if they want to torpedo Kavanaugh or become famous to say something that's not true. Now, I know it's to the FBI. People don't lie to the FBI. No one is going to be able to prove whether you're lying. So there's an, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's the incentive for it to happen because it's not happening in a vacuum. So I'm, I'm very concerned about the dangers of this FBI investigation, and there's going to be no benefit. They're not going to be able to find anything in a week. Come on, people. The FBI is not magic. I spoke to John Snedden, who we had on this uh, podcast uh, last year. He's the guy who did the NCIS investigation of the former Penn State President Graham Spanier over his security clearance in the Penn State matter. It's almost exactly the same thing that they're asking the FBI to do with regard to Kavanaugh and this Ford and I guess maybe the Ramirez situations. Only far more difficult because it's in a far longer period of time ago. So I spoke to Sned today. He's like, this is insane. My investigation took six months of Graham Spanier. And that was a fairly simple situation where we already knew who all the players were because there have been already been court proceedings on it. There's been none of that in this. So how the hell in a week you're going to be able to find anything? I have no idea. Uh, and I see nothing but bad things coming out of that. But Jeff Flake was trying to do the right thing and he was naive and he didn't. And Charles Grassley is such a moron and he had such a, sh a shit fit when this went down, this compromise, he didn't even get the Democrats on tape saying that they would agree to this, that they are in favor of this. So now there's nothing holding the Democrats from going, oh, well, this wasn't what we agreed to, which is what they're going to do. So no one's going to be pleased. And, I, of course, it's also hilarious that the FBI, the same FBI that Trump thinks is out to get him, is now, now going to exonerate and be fair with regard to Brett Kavanaugh. A couple of things about Kavanaugh's testimony that liberals have latched onto that I need to mention very quickly. They believe that they think that July 1st, the July 1st calendar date uh, in Kavanaugh's testimony, and of course he's been mocked for keeping this calendar, which is strange to me. I don't, I don't get it. But, but the liberal view is that anything on his calendar is irrelevant because obviously he wouldn't document a rape, right? That's what, they, that's what their original version of the, the calendar was. And then when the July 1st, mention got uh, talked about under under oath all of a sudden liberals like wait look he just admitted it this is the whole the scenario these are the people that were there uh no these are not the people that were there there's there's a couple of big problems there's no leland kaiser but even bigger problem is there's no chris barrett chris barrett was her boyfriend at the time her only connection to the kavanaugh judge group how could he not be there in Ford's telling of the story. Now, there is a theory that she, that Barrett's not there in Ford's telling of the story. In fact, she wouldn't even mention his name during her testimony because maybe, maybe he actually is. I want to underline maybe. 
theoretically, maybe he is the one that did this. And she's blocked it out of her memory and transferred it onto Kavanaugh. But I don't think that's the case because there's other problems with this, this July 1st get-together. Not only is there no Cleland, there's no uh, uh, Barrett, which is inexplicable. She would No way she would possibly rem, uh, not remember Barrett being there, and there's no reason for why she would even be there without Barrett being there. But also, the house is in the wrong place. It's nowhere near where she said it was, and it's the wrong type of house where they were going on this July 1st date. So this is a red herring. Then there's the devil's triangle thing. This really gets me. This is how desperate liberals have become, anti-Kavanaugh people have become. Because there's a reference to Devil's Triangle in Kavanaugh's yearbook, his high school yearbook. And by the way, can we, can we not forget that we're talking about a high school yearbook here? I mean, that's absurd on its face. It's, it's, right off the bat, we're in la-la land. It's just flat out ridiculous. But okay, if we're going to talk about it, I get that he testified about it, so theoretically it's, it's potential fodder for perjury. Liberals believe that as a 17, 18-year-old Catholic boy from an all-boys school who says he was a virgin, that the reference to Devil's Triangle was actually about threesomes. Now, can we please do the math on this? Uh, number one, um, it's 1982. I've already gone through the whole only the good die young thing. And uh, he says he's a virgin. By the way, if he's not really a virgin, if he's lying about that, so none of the girls he ever slept with are either liberals or fame whores who would love to torpedo him right now. Where are they? Why haven't they come forward? That hasn't happened because he really was a virgin. So he's a virgin, but he's writing in the yearbook about threesomes, which I guarantee you never were happening at all boys Catholic schools in 1982 at Georgetown Prep. But um, if it somehow did his entire life would be different. There would be so much more information about him that would be consistent with that that doesn't exist. But then there's this. He gets asked about it. Now think, this is what I really want people to do to the math. He gets asked about the devil's triangle. Now think about his life. His life is a catastrophe at this moment. And he's been working nonstop on, on all these allegations against him and writing his opening speech, which was a long speech, a long statement that took a lot of time to carefully write. So the last thing on his mind, as, as his handlers are helping him prepare, nobody is coming to him and saying, you know, we need to be prepared for what you wrote in your high school yearbook. And specifically, we need to come up with a cover story for what Devil's Triangle really is. That is not happening. That is ridiculous. It's absurd. There's no evidence for it. There's no logic behind it. And so when he gets asked about it, he has an instantaneous answer that it's a drinking game like quarters. Now, that seems a lot more plausible to me than it's about threesomes that he never engaged in. And by the way, who the hell cares? It's his high school yearbook. <sighs> anyway, last couple things. Um, <clears throat> you know what? Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention. This whole Kavanaugh issue has really brought up a fascinating divide within what I call the, or what is called the, the Never Trump brigade or small brigade of, of commentators, of which I am, a, a, I guess, a minor figure. 
and, and this has caught me a little bit by surprise because to me, Trump has nothing to do with whether or not you should support Kavanaugh. You should support Kavanaugh based upon what's right and what the facts are, what the evidence is, what the right precedents are or are not. And I'm still open to people voting against him on the partisan slash temperament issue, but I'm, I'm not there, mainly because of the precedent issue. But it seems like most of the prominent never-Trump commentators, the media people, have been very anti-Kavanaugh. And it's been too prevalent to be coincidental, and it's been disturbing to me. Because whenever someone's self-interest just happens to coincide with their position, that doesn't prove correlation, you know, doesn't prove causation, but it's possible. And especially when it's happening to a lot of different people. A lot of people I like, a lot of people have been on this podcast, a lot of people I consider somewhat friendly with. And so that's been disturbing to me because it feels like it's possible that this might be delineating a line between those never Trumpers who are never Trump out of principle and because they believe in the truth and those who are really doing it partially out of career aspirations because there are some people, not many, a handful, who have been able to make this work for them career-wise. Jennifer Rubin is like the worst of all worst. She's the alleged conservative columnist at the Washington Post. She's been on this podcast. I used to like her. I mean, she she's acting like Brett Kavanaugh is Bill Cosby or worse. And it's ridiculous. And it's because, obviously, this is getting her liberal love. Liberal love must be really powerful. I, and maybe it's because I just don't give a shit about being loved by anybody because I don't like humans. That doesn't matter to me. Liberal love, conservative love, I don't care. I must have lost like 600 uh, Twitter followers over the last couple of weeks with the Serena Williams thing and the Brett Kavanaugh thing. And I guarantee you they're all liberals. Well, I didn't even know were following me. But now, you know, I guess they decided I'm, I'm not real because I, I disagree with them on something they felt very passionately about. So unfollow. Okay, whatever. If, if you want to unfollow me for that, then I don't want you following me. But for a lot of people, it's a big deal. A lot of people, this means a lot to them. Getting on MSNBC or CNN or being published in the right places. And that's, I, I haven't come to a definitive conclusion about this yet, but it's, it's getting me suspicious. All right, so that's uh, about all. I, I could say more, but I, we're way past time already. That's enough for now on uh, what's going on with Kavanaugh. As far as the prediction, I, I'm not sure he's going to get confirmed because I think there are going to be other twists and turns in this, and I think that by the time this FBI thing is over with, there's going to be other chapters, and I, I still think it's 50-50. And I also think, by the way, one of the reasons why Flake what Flake did was dumb is that the memory of Kavanaugh's impassioned defense is going to fade with some people. Uh, now, of course, on his side, it's really only a jury of one. As long as Trump stays with him, he probably is okay, and there's no sign that Trump is going to abandon him, although with Trump, you never know. Last thing uh, I'll mention, uh, Tiger Woods did, in fact, win the Tour Championship last week, as I predicted that he would. It was um, quite emotional. It was amazing to see. It's remarkable. I'm glad I was wrong that he would probably never win again, although technically I, I, I think I said I, he would never win a major championship before. And, and also, by the way, not only did I predict he would win last Sunday, I, I predicted he would win, if he was ever going to win, it was going to be at that event. And frankly, based upon how poorly he played at the Ryder Cup, which ended the day, 
I'm already starting to think that the tour championship was a little bit of a fluke, that there were a lot of circumstances that were unique there. A shortened field, only 30 people, several of which were preparing for the Ryder Cup, especially the Europeans, or weren't even trying to win like Justin Rose. He was just worried about winning the $10 million bonus. And Rory McIlroy was clearly getting ready for the Ryder Cup and didn't really care that much. And other guys were probably intimidated by the money and the course set up well for him. So everything kind of, and I think a lot of guys were tired, which I think hurt the United States in the Ryder Cup because these guys have been playing a lot of competitive golf over the last two months. So while it was awesome and great and maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible comeback and he ought to be considered for Sportsman of the Year, it might not be quite as amazing as it seemed just seven days ago. As far as the United States losing the Ryder Cup, boy, I, I'm just so sick and tired of these spoiled brats, especially Phil Mickelson. Phil Mick this is the last Ryder Cup almost surely for Phil Mickelson. He's had a horrible career, and this jackass – torpedoed and backstabbed Tom Watson in 2014 to distract from his own bad play at publicly at a press conference. It was an abomination. I've never forgiven him for it. And, uh, and he played horrible. Tiger played horrible. A bunch of the other stars played horrible. The Europeans deserved to win. And uh, God damn it, Donald Trump, I thought you were going to make America great again. But uh, we, we, ha we still haven't won a Ryder Cup on, on, on European soil since 1993. My mother was still alive. Raymond Floyd. Golf fans will know who he is. Raymond Floyd was one of the stars of that team in 1993. You know how old Raymond Floyd is today? 76 years old. That's how long it's been since the United States won a Ryder Cup on European soil, and it's going to be at least another four years, if not more, after they got waxed today. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Uh, there is a special hour number two that's old, but it's also new, and <laughs> it's worth listening to. Because it'll show you not just about the Penn State case and how insane it really is, but also the absurdity of my life and how it's a miracle that I haven't put a bullet through my brain. So, so you'll uh, you'll appreciate hour number two. And it's, there's also a lot of similarities I'm sure you'll find between this and the Kavanaugh story because they are uh, voluminous. So check out hour number two. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, uh, please make sure that uh, you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, tag me. I'll share it as well. I'll retweet, what have you, uh, or just tell people about it word of mouth because that's the only way people will find out about this podcast. And uh, number two, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.